0: What if I told you that a society much like ours could go from one of the most sexually progressive to one of the most oppressive in the span of a decade? You'd probably say, you're crazy, you've been watching too much of The Handmaid's Tale. But the fact is, it happened. In the 1920s, in the Weimar period after World War I, Germany was remarkably prophetic of modern Western sexual values, making strides in gender equality, gay rights, and even transgender awareness. Yet, by the 1930s, it was implementing a program of sexual control that makes The Handmaid's Tale look like a hippie retreat. Now, if you haven't seen it, or read the book by Margaret Atwood, The Handmaid's Tale tells the near-future story of a time when pollution has caused most women in the world to become infertile, while those who remain capable of bearing children are put into service as baby-making machines. And if unwilling to accept such a fate, they are rounded up and forced into it anyway by a dictatorial government that has assumed control of the United States of America. Now, on the face of it, that doesn't really sound that much like the Nazis other than the dictatorial part, but that's probably because you don't normally think of the Nazis as being interested in sex. You just never seem to hear about that part. Although the argument could be made that it was a fundamental pillar of their ideology. I mean, really, can you name even one thing about what the Nazis thought about sex? Did they think it was good, bad, sinful, wonderful, weird? What? All those World War II documentaries and books and movies and podcasts out there, and yet most people can't name even one single thing about sex in Nazi Germany, except, of course, for those people whose kind they killed for their sexualities and gender identities. The truth is that the Nazis were very much interested in the sex lives of their citizens. I mean, after all, how else do you breed a master race? In the words of historian Anna Clark, For Nazi leaders, sex was a raw explosive force, like violence, that should strengthen the fascist state. Hitler encouraged SS men to have sex to produce Aryan sons, just as he urged them to kill for the state. And Clark further characterizes the Nazi policy as... Sexual desire in the service of the state. Sex in service to the state. Yep, that sounds like a real-life handmaid's tale, all right. Well, how did this happen in Germany? And could it ever happen again? That's what we're talking about today. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. (laughs) ¶¶ History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I want to thank our Patreon patron Jen Graneman for making this episode possible. Jen Graneman is the author of the book The Secret Lives of Introverts and can be found at www.introvertdeer.com. I also want to give a big shout out to our launch team members, Jen Graneman, Andre Solo, Anna Bratton, Nick Moen, Brian Beard, Nikki Sperry, and Riley Irvin. This is the first episode in our super deep dive series, Sex in the Third Reich. Every other month this year, we'll bring you more in this series until we've looked at the time period from virtually every perspective, man, woman, straight, queer, you name it. So strap in, folks. It's going to be a heck of a ride. Before we get started, I do just want to give a quick disclaimer, though. We are going to be talking about some pretty horrific stuff. That should go without saying if we're talking about the Nazis, but the internet being what it is, sometimes it's best to spell these things out. What's more, there's going to be a considerable amount of dark humor in this series that is not to minimize the horror, but rather to emphasize it. It's sort of a laugh to keep from crying kind of thing. See, sex and gender is a topic that can get stuffy real fast if done wrong, but humor makes it okay to talk about. And that's all the more true when we're talking about something as nasty as the Nazis. So if you enjoy a little twisted humor, and you really want to know why Hitler envisioned not so much a welfare state as a daycare state, well, by all means, listen on. Start by giving you three broad facts about the interwar period of Germany called the Weimar Republic, which preceded the Nazi regime beginning in 1919 after the end of World War I. Fact number one, women achieved a new level of independence. Women had won the right to vote by the end of the war in 1918, well ahead of the United States, I should add. German women were working in higher-paying jobs in a far wider range of industries than their mothers before them, and thanks in no small part to those jobs, many women also led a far more independent lifestyle, including smoking, drinking, dancing, generally having a good time. And most importantly for our topic today, they more or less controlled if and when they chose to have children in practice, if not on paper. See, condoms were widespread, and abortion was legalized for the first time in this period for cases posing grave risk to the mother. Now, abortions in other cases, while still illegal, were by no means unheard of. In fact, historian Corneli Usborne writes, By the end of the First World War, abortion had become, for many, the main method of birth control. Now, not everybody loved that fact, much as today the debate about abortion was very much alive, but the point stands. It was widespread, and women were, by and large, in control of their bodies. Fact number two. Gays began to organize. A movement toward legalization of homosexuality was rapidly gaining ground thanks in no small part to the world's first Institute for Sexuality established by Magnus Hirschfeld. A homosexual himself, Hirschfeld pushed for consent as the only relevant factor regarding sex that the law need concern itself with instead of archaic arguments about natural and unnatural acts, quote-unquote. In the wake of such activity, a veritable gay subculture sprang up in Berlin during this period, including gay clubs and organized gay groups. Fact number three. Other sexual identities began to gain recognition. Magnus Hirschfeld wrote of people with no sexual desire under the term anesthesia sexual, referring to those that we might today call asexual. He also coined the term transsexual, to describe what we call transgender individuals today. Now, I know the term transsexual now refers more specifically to those desiring a permanent sex change, whereas transgender is today the big umbrella term that is preferred, but it started with Hirschfeld using transsexual as the broad umbrella term at the time. Now, in addition, Hirschfeld's institute worked with the government to issue passes for transvestites, protecting them from harassment by police. See, authorities suspected those dressed in such clothing of being prostitutes of a certain stripe, but the pass effectively stated, no, this is who I am and how I choose to live, leave me alone. And police, correspondingly, focused their attention elsewhere. Finally, the Institute for Sexuality offered endocrinological and surgical services. The first complete male-to-female gender confirmation surgery was undergone in this time period by one Dora Richter. This was the Germany of the Weimar Republic that came after the First World War. And if it sounds strikingly modern, it's because it is. Weimar Germany is not that far removed from us, a mere century. And in fact, it will be 100 years exactly this November 9th. Now in historical terms, 100 years is a blink of an eye. So I guess it shouldn't come as that much of a surprise that their values were close to ours, although it does still surprise me. See, now I want to see a Weimar-era pride parade with a leather daddy and a picklehaube, you know, those German helmets with the spike on top, riding around in a sidecar driven by a trans woman with a sign that says, I was a boy once, turns out it was just a phase. That was Weimar Germany. The seeds of today's modern Western values regarding sex and gender were already in the ground by that time, and with the fall of the Kaiser's Empire after the Great War, those seeds began to germinate in the new Germany of the Weimar Republic. It wasn't that different from our world today. Okay, now let me hit you with three more facts, this time from the period that followed immediately after the Weimar Republic, the Nazi dictatorship, rising to power scarcely more than a decade later, in 1933, and the contrast in terms of sexual freedom could not be more stark. Fact number one, women were to be mothers. Full stop. At the Nuremberg Party Congress in 1934, Hitler declared a woman's world is her husband, her family, her children, and her house. Sounds like a pretty marked contrast with the self-determined woman of the Weimar era, doesn't it? But he wasn't kidding. See, in the Nazi state, there was no room for the freewheeling independent woman. She was to be a mother. End of story. And to encourage this, the regime created a special medal called the Mutterkreuz, or Cross of Honor of the German Mother, with bronze recognizing four children, silver six, and gold eight or more children and the 1944 film Die Deutsche Wokenschau, meaning the German newsreel, highlights a woman proudly bearing a gold Mutterkreuz about her neck, and she bore 16 children, 11 of which survived. Meanwhile, the Lebensborn program, meaning Fount of Life, set up special maternity hospitals for the wives of SS officers to give birth in the highest comforts. These same wives, however competed with their husband's mistresses, and could be divorced to enable him to remarry a more racially valuable quote-unquote Aryan lass, particularly one coming up out of the Glaube und Schönheit, or Faith and Beauty section, of the League of German Maidens, which was the female counterpart of the Hitler Youth. Now imagine being a wife asked to meekly step aside and just let this happen. Or for that matter, imagine being the SS officer, feeling the pinch by your boss to put away your wife, that you love for a more valuable model. This order, it came up from the top. You were pressured by your boss to take up a more racially fit model. Or imagine being that model that Arian Lass expected to do your national duty very much in the manner of a handmaid in Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Fact number two, those who did not bear offspring due to their orientation were targeted. Male homosexuals, in particular, came into the crosshairs on this account. See, those who were considered salvageable were re-educated so that they too could father children, while those deemed beyond saving found their fate in work camps, medical experiments, or worse who knows how many submitted to marriage and, no doubt, consummation, merely to conceal their orientation, forced to somehow get it up with a woman that you find no more attractive than a straight guy finds his guy friend, well, at least until she falls pregnant and your loyalty to the fatherland is thus no longer in question. Meanwhile, female homosexuals were oddly ignored, There was a proposal to target lesbians as well, but it failed supposedly because it would be too difficult to tell them from straight women who are merely friends. Now, that reasoning sounds a little uncharacteristic of the Nazis to me. I don't know about you. Personally, I suspect that the Nazis forewent persecuting lesbians because they basically saw their desire as ultimately irrelevant. They looked at them and they only saw fertile fields ripe for the plowing, but you can make up your own mind on that one. The larger point here is that orientations disinclined to produce children were pressured, in some cases by brutal force, to make babies anyway. Fact number three, those of other sexual identities, including asexual and transgender individuals, after having finally achieved their first glimmers of recognition in the Weimar period, fell off the map in the Nazi one. Many of them had found work at Magus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexuality, one of the few places that they could find employment without concealing their sexual or gender identities. However, when students acting as Nazi thugs sacked the Institute in 1933, burning its books and permanently closing its doors... Those within either fled or met their fates. Dora Richter, the first to undergo a full male-to-female sex change that we mentioned earlier, is not known to have survived the attack. And it's hard to know how many more went into hiding after that event. A kind of hiding not in an attic like Anne Frank, but out in the open. A kind of gender hiding. It was the same kind of hiding their kind had already endured for ages, but with a bit more motivation to stay that way. This was the sexual climate in Germany under the Nazi regime. Quite a contrast to the Weimar period, which immediately preceded it. Now you'll notice the unifying factor in all three of these facts from the Nazi period is babies, babies, babies. Did you notice? I'm sure you did. That's no exaggeration. It was a national policy. Hitler stated in a 1933 interview, The program of our National Socialist Women's Movement has in truth but one single point, and that point is the child. It is strange to think of it, but the Nazis wanted a Germany bursting at the seams with little ankle biters. Now, if at this point you were to say to me, wait just a minute there, Mr. B.T. Newberg, I haven't heard any of this before, so why should I believe you? Well, I wouldn't blame you. I hadn't heard of it either. It doesn't get talked about. I mean, when I was a kid, the History Channel ran so many World War II documentaries that they nicknamed it the Hitler Channel, and yet this stuff was new to me. Researching this stuff, frankly, I was floored, and I thought, this can't possibly be accurate. But it is. You can check it out for yourself. Our references list, which you can see at our website, is a mile long. It's all the more unbelievable in that it sounds like something out of the pages of science fiction. It sounds like a knockoff of The Handmaid's Tale. Of course, nothing like that could really happen. Certainly not today. Certainly not in America. I mean, we wouldn't stand for it, we tell ourselves. Well, that's what Germans in the Weimar Republic were telling themselves too." So what went wrong? What happened to women in control of their bodies, gay men organizing, and transgender individuals earning their first glimmers of recognition? All of a sudden, you've got such an over-the-top patriarchy, it sounds like it could only happen in fiction, and even in fiction, it would feel like a caricature. I mean, seriously, if someone in the Weimar period had written a sci-fi story about a mere ten years hence, where a totalitarian regime takes over and makes everyone pump up babies like Schnitzel, they would have laughed. It would have been called a comedy. A dark comedy, sure, but a comedy nonetheless. The very idea of it would have been absurd. Ha ha, very good, but it could never happen. Not here, is what they would have said. And yet it did happen. Germany went from a progressive's dream to the handmaid's tale in hardly more than a decade. Now, how does a change like that transpire? And could it happen here, too? That's what we're going to talk about in the remaining parts of this episode. But first, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back after this. What kind of underwear was Queen Elizabeth I having to deal with when she dominated that English throne? What did women in ancient Egypt use for contraception? Was the 19th century hoop skirt used to suppress women, or did it actually liberate them? Welcome to The Exploress, where we time travel back through women's history to discover what it was really like to be them. Join me as we walk through past eras, exploring their worlds so we can appreciate their stories. Ready to meet a whole host of fascinating women? Let's go traveling. And now, the History of Sex presents this. (laughs) Let's listen to Uncle Hitler. Listen hmm? to Uncle oh, Hitler give a speech. <laughs> a speech. <laughs> shh, shh, shh. No, no, cry. Let's play. Let's play. Who's a little Luftwaffe? Huh? Huh? Yo. Who's a little Luftwaffe? Who's a little Luftwaffe? Who's a little Luftwaffe? <laughs> no, no, no. Shh. No, don't. No, don't play with that. That's Danny luger. <laughs> oh. It's not on my SS stripes. Oh, shh! No, no, no! No cry! Shh, 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 shh. No cry! Shh. Oh, oh. Okay. okay, okay, okay. Time to go. All right. Okay. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Pardon me, Oh, Now you got them all crying. All right. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Pardon me, danka Excuse me. Excuse me. All right. We're back. Much as in The Handmaid's Tale, Germany was desperate to raise the birth rate. The problem wasn't pollution, though, but a catastrophe of an entirely different kind. It was the Great War. World War I, which lasted from 1914 to 1918, was devastating for all the European powers involved, but especially for Germany. Now, using very rough numbers, just for the sake of speeding along the narrative here, Britain lost about a million men, France around a million and a half, but Germany lost as much as both of those nations combined. A good two and a half million men were lost by Germany in the Great War. Now, as a total number of deaths, that wasn't the highest in the war. Russia actually suffered more raw deaths than Germany, but as a percentage of its total population, Russia only lost less than 2%, whereas Germany lost more than double that percentage of their population. So, the Great War gutted Germany. It was suffering from a severe shortage of people. What's more, since about the turn of the century, the fertility rate had been declining. Whereas the average German woman in 1900 gave birth to 4.93 children, that had plunged to 2.26 by the end of World War I. And statistics here are gonna be courtesy of ourworldandata.org. you can check it out yourself. In other words, by the end of the Great War, the fertility rate was less than half of what it was at the turn of the century. And this pattern was happening all across Western Europe at the time, but for Germany, it was especially concerning. For a country that had lost so many men, this represented a catastrophe. Now, speaking of men, some of those coming back from the front lines were those who would become the early Nazis. Those survivors crawling their way out from under the pile of bodies in the trenches gave birth to this new ideology. Everything about their thinking was premised on the belief that Germany should have won the Great War, and they only lost it due to a supposed stab in the back by certain so-called traitor populations, mainly the Jews and, as we'll see in a future episode, the New Woman, But more on that later. What's more, Germany could and would win the next war, but in order to do so, they had to get the population back up. And there was a time clock on this too. They knew a second war was coming, if for no other reason than because they could not suffer to think that there wouldn't be. They couldn't bear the thought of being condemned to ignoble defeat for all time. One way or another, a second war was coming, even if they had to be the ones to start it. Which, eventually, they did. And too early, by the way. The next generation would barely be out of diapers by the time hostilities breaks out again. But we'll have to return to that boo-boo in another episode. For now, the mindset was that they needed more men and didn't have the luxury to raise the population at a leisurely pace. They had to do it quickly, or they wouldn't be ready for the next war. And they didn't just need any men, either. They needed Germans. Aryan Germans. Why? Because racism, that's why. Pseudo-scientific survival-of-the-fittest-style racism was was rampant across Europe and the Americas in those days. Germany was not unique in this regard. Everybody had their own racist-fascist party. Britain had the BUF, led by Oswald Mosley. France had the Parti Populaire Francaise. And the U.S. had the Silver Legion, led by William Dudley Pelley. The Germans just happened to be the poor schmucks whose right-wing nutjobs actually made it into power. Anyway, the point is, the population had to be raised... And only good Aryan Germans would do. Because frankly, in addition to losing the Great War, they were losing another war, the Population War. See, they looked at their neighbors to the east, the Slavs, an inferior race, don't you know? And they saw them breeding much faster. Whereas Germans were birthing 2.26 babies per mother at the end of the war, Russia was pumping out a whopping 5.72 That's more than double. And other Slavic nations were multiplying at similar rates. Now, from a racist perspective, if you can bear to put yourself in that mindset, that is bleak indeed. If you view the world in terms of us versus them, well, let's just say in a few generations, there's not going to be any us. It's only going to be them. Germany was losing another war, the Population War. So the early Nazis were desperate for change. But what about everyone else in Germany at the time? The Nazis were still a minority at this point. So what was everybody else doing? How did a country so like our modern West turn upside down so quickly? The answer is desperation. A series of catastrophic events put the people up against a wall And their current leadership, the Weimar government, could not save them. See, for all the progressive virtues of the Weimar Republic, it just wasn't very effective as a government, and it suffered one heartbreak after another. For example, almost immediately after coming to power, there was a rebellion that it had to fight by Bolsheviks that it couldn't really fight off because it was so new. So the government had to call on volunteer paramilitary groups called Freikorps to put down the rebellion. Now imagine that, you're the new government, everybody's wondering, can I trust you? There's fighting in the streets, and your solution is to crowdsource it. I mean, people are crying, save us! And the Weimar government says, yeah, we'd love to, but (laughs) the thing is, uh, oh yeah, any of you war veterans out there still got your guns? How about you roll on down there and, you know, take care of it by yourselves? Nice solution. Now among these volunteer fighters that took care of it were many who would become the Nazis, scoring some early points with the people and making the Weimar government look pretty weak in the process. But worse than that challenge was hyperinflation. See, With crippling war reparations imposed upon it by the Versailles Treaty, the Weimar government witnessed its economy fall into a tailspin. The German Reichsmark inflated to the point where it took wheelbarrows full of cash to buy a pair of socks and workers had to be paid before noon so that they could go out on their lunch hour to buy bread before their morning's wages had lost half their value by the end of the day. Historian Irene Gunther writes, In 1920, it took eight marks to obtain one dollar. By mid-1922, one dollar equaled 7,650 marks. In February 1923, 40,000 marks were worth one dollar, and by August, one million marks equaled one dollar. At the peak of hyperinflation, November 1923, one liter of milk cost 20 billion marks. Bus fares within the city generally cost 15 billion marks. Yikes! See, before the war, Germany's economy had been thriving, In fact, it had been one of the strongest economies in the world, enough to compete with the British Empire without even having any shipping lanes available to it. And yet, after the war, it cost 15 billion marks to ride the frickin' bus. You can imagine what it was like to live in a place like that, where your money is all but worthless. Photographs from the period show people carving up horses in the street. The hunger was that bad. My favorite photo of the time, though, shows children playing with blocks that upon closer inspection turn out to be bundles of cash. German marks reduced to children's toys. That really says it. The chaos of hyperinflation made the Weimar government appear impotent while conservative forces, like the early Nazis, were looking more and more attractive. But it was not over yet for the Weimar government. See, partly as a consequence of hyperinflation, there was a boom in prostitution. See, locals were desperate to make ends meet, and foreigners could suddenly buy a whole lot more for their buck. Germany was inundated with foreign tourists carrying hard currency. Not marks, but cash that was actually worth something. Now, just for comparison, whereas in Paris, $5 could engage a prostitute for one night, in Berlin, that same money could buy a month's worth of carnal delights. Now, I don't necessarily want to imply that prostitution is implicitly bad. I don't think so, but in this case there's some hairy implications. I mean, it's the exploitation by foreigners and the questionable consent issues when locals are forced into it by economic desperation that makes this situation hairy indeed. Soon, Berlin came to be known as a place where any kind of pleasure could be indulged. And let me tell you, it got weird. Now, the faint of heart may want to skip past this part because the story is about to get pretty graphic. Every variety of pleasure that you could imagine was there in Berlin, each with its own special nickname. Control girls were those registered with the government, while five o'clock girls were unregistered women just supplementing their income on the side. Minnets, meaning female cats, would whip you for a price, while racehorses were girls who let you whip them. Boot girls were dominas who wore patent leather boots of different colors to indicate their specialties. While gravel stones were girls with deformities, like hunchbacks or missing limbs. And these were also called woodchucks. I know, it's getting pretty hard to listen to, but there's more. Munzis were pregnant girls who congregated on Munzstrasse. And finally, medicine referred to underaged girls ordered by prescription from phony doctors, and to do so, you would indicate the length of your illness to signify the age of the girl desired and the color of the pills to request her hair color. I could go on, but I think you get the picture. This was the other side of the Weimar Republic. Its sexual values were progressive, but... Also desperate. You could freely express your sexuality, which for some, like homosexuals or transgender people, venturing out for the first time was liberating. At the same time, things could get pretty exploitative. And you could argue that consent was pretty well compromised when people were hungry, anxious, and willing to do whatever it took to make ends meet. All of this happened under the Weimar government, which appeared now not only weak and impotent, but vice-ridden as well, and that played perfectly into the hands of the Nazis, who were able to attract many just by promising to clean up the streets. In the end, the inflation which enabled all of this was finally stabilized in November of 1923 when a new currency was introduced, the Rentenmark, which was pegged to the international value of gold. And for a short time, Germany did enter the Roaring Twenties and saw some limited prosperity. However, just when it seemed the troubles were over, along came the 1930s and with it the Great Depression. And the unemployment rate, which in the United States peaked at 25%, rose to nearly 30%. I've even seen 40% at a high estimate. The chaos was starting all over again. This was the climate of desperation in which the National Socialist German Workers' Party, i.e. the Nazis, Nazis is an acronym for what that means in German, this was the climate in which they ran for office. Now, just imagine yourself in that situation. You might like to say that you would never vote for a Nazi, but if all that had happened to them had happened to you, Well, you might change your story. After all that they had suffered, the rebellion, the inflation, the prostitution boom, the Great Depression, wouldn't you too vote for the candidate promising strong government, even if you had to put up with a few sketchy policies to get it? If we're being honest with ourselves, I think a lot of us would take that deal. We might not feel good about it, but we'd take it. Sure, we'd say. Whatever. We can talk about that other stuff later, so long as I never have to eat horses in the street again. On January 30th, 1933, Adolf Hitler was appointed chancellor, and Germany was never the same again. That is how a world, much like ours, turns upside down in the span of a decade. That's how Germany became a real-life Handmaid's Tale. Now, could it happen here today? I don't know. That's hard to say. But what we can say is that the Germans of the Weimar Republic were not that different from us, and they didn't think that it could happen to them either. Now, the real difference is that The Weimar Germans suffered conditions far worse than anything that we're seeing in the West today. They suffered calamity after calamity, as we've seen. And that made them desperate. And yet, if we were similarly desperate, beset by problems like, oh, I don't know, maybe runaway pollution, as in The Handmaid's Tale, well, we might similarly transform in unexpected ways. But I don't know. What do you think? Could a modern Western state be taken over by a totalitarian regime today? Could we ever know a world like in The Handmaid's Tale? I'd love to hear your answer. And you can chime in on our Facebook page, where we are at History of Sex Pod. Germany knew a world uncomfortably similar to The Handmaid's Tale, although it wasn't quite the same, of course. To deal with the declining fertility rate, they didn't institute a program of slave surrogates, for example— But what did they do? Well, we've already heard a few things, like the Mütterkreutz Medal for Prolific Mothers, the pressure on young girls to give a child to the Fuhrer, and the attacks on gays who were, shall we say, not pulling their weight and sowing the racial seed. But that's just the beginning. There was a whole national program from tip to toe aimed at filling the fatherland with Aryan infants. Now, what did that program look like? What did it feel like? Did it work? For those answers... Check out our next episode, entitled, How to Breed a Master Race. I'm excited for this project, as I'm sure you can hear. And listeners, if you want to see this project succeed, you can show your support. The best thing you can do for a new show like this is subscribe, download all the episodes, and rate and review it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Here's how to do it. If you're on an iPhone, open Apple Podcasts and search for The History of Sex, then tap Reviews and write a review. If you're on a desktop, go to iTunes, which is a free download, whether you're running Mac or Windows. Search the history of sex and click ratings and reviews. Now, Apple Podcasts and iTunes for various industry reasons are the most valuable to us. But a lot of people listen on Stitcher. So if you're using Stitcher, you can leave a review, but you have to go to stitcher.com and you have to do it on a desktop. I don't know why they make you jump through that hoop, but you're dedicated, right? So thank you for your support. Other podcatcher platforms have their own ways of rating and reviewing, which I'm sure you can figure out since you're all a resourceful bunch. Anyway, thank you for your support. If you want to talk to us, we're always happy to hear from you. You can find our website at www.historyofsexpod.com, write to us at historyofsexpod at gmail.com, or find us on Facebook or Twitter or Pinterest or Instagram, where we are at History of historyofsexpod. We'd love to hear what you think. This episode includes revisions. The show gets better thanks to comments by listeners like you. Thanks to those who have suggested improvements. And if you have a suggestion, you can reach me at historyofsexpod at gmail.com. All right, that's it for today, folks. I'm BT Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McCloud. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.